But if you see that there are actually two dimensions that are being compressed into one, then it starts to make more sense. So you have to see that there's a line of thinking that follows Rav through the Seder. And there's another line of thinking that follows Shmuel through the Seder, and that those are interwoven in complex and beautiful ways. And then the, the structure of the Seder starts to become much more transparent. We have to see our story in a multidimensional way. This is a special episode of the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn, and today we're going to talk about the Haggadah. Very often on the Orthodox Conundrum, we deal with weighty issues, very serious issues, some of them happier than others, some of them more difficult than others. Before Pesach, I wanted to talk about the Haggadah and really just get a feel for the textual history of the Haggadah, to understand the Seder better, and to get some ideas that can help us all as we prepare for Pesach. To that end, I invited Mayor Simcha Panzer and Nachliel Selavan to join me on the podcast. They are the co-hosts of the Artifact podcast, and they deal extensively with textual history, Israeli history, Jewish history, and they have a lot to offer about the Haggadah, which I found fascinating. Nachliel Selavan is a museum and history buff and an artistic and creative educator. He grew up in the old city of Yerushalayim, where he scavenged archaeological sites, encountered many different types of tourists, and now he's become an educator who brings history to life by sharing his experiences. My friend Mayor Simcha Panzer is a perpetual student with many, many interests, languages, linguistics, neuroscience, philosophy, mathematics, and music. He grew up in Virginia, went to Brandeis University, as I did. He then took a long walk along the Appalachian Trail before he found his way to Yerushalayim. In addition to co-hosting the Artifact podcast, he also co-hosts the podcast Two Christians and a Jew, which explores how Christians and Jews read Tanakh differently and what difference it makes in all of our lives. I'm sure you'll enjoy this discussion of the Haggadah as much as I did. Chag Hasher V'Sameach. Nachliel Selavan and Meir Simcha Panzer, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for bringing us on the show. Before we get into issues of the Haggadah, which is our main topic today, I want to ask you both just who you are and what your backgrounds are. Why don't we start with you, Amir Simcha? Well, uh, I'm a Choser B'Truva, so I had my own kind of uh, Yitziat Mitzrayim. Uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C., in the deep, dark depths of the Washington Swamp, and uh, eventually made my way here to Yerushalayim. I'm really into ideas. Uh, Nachliel is our uh, historical force, and I'm the one who has ideas about what the history means. Uh, I'm from the old city. So the old city of Jerusalem, I grew up there and I just always grew up sort of realizing that history and the crazy tourists who come here and all like the Jerusalem syndrome, people who like relive history in their own mind and all kinds of things like that. It was all like enmeshed for me and is an experience of just who I am in the streets of the old city. So while I was never really drawn to dry history and dates and stuff like that, but to me, it was something that's always alive and interesting. So I have background in Jewish education. I've taught Tanakh uh, in, in Israel and in New York, New Jersey. Uh, Tanakh, I sort of stumbled into teaching Jewish history. I never really thought I would enjoy it. I didn't like history in high school. Mm-hmm. And then as I was exposed to ideas, which is where Mayor Simcha and I sort of overlap, is I just like these ideas and how they have to do with our identity and, and who we are. And that through that, I was drawn into history and I'm doing an MA in Jewish history. And so from there, I sort of got along to talking about historical things, but it was sort of like the back door. I never really liked dry history. When you talk about history though, that leads to a question, which before we actually get into our main topic is sort of the framework in which I want to place that topic. I think a lot of people who are religious, when they hear history or maybe even historical criticism or textual criticism or the history of a text, they get nervous. They say, oh boy, is this actually going to 
affect my religious understanding of what I've been doing all these years. Obviously, the Haggadah is not a sacred text like the Tanakh in the same sort of way. It's a type of Torah Shabbat Peh. At the same time, when we talk about the history of the Haggadah text, some people listening now might be worried, is this something which I'm going to feel comfortable about, or will this affect my religiosity in a negative way? What would you answer them if they were to ask that question? I would say, first of all, the, the, the question is uh, straight to the jugular. I like it. Uh, the question is, it's a big one. It's one that when I was in uh, studying an MA in ancient Jewish history at YU, I was exposed to many levels of that question that I was a bit oblivious to. So sometimes I th- think maybe it would have been better before than after. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't really have answers. I have more of an approach in which I am at peace with engaging in these things without them threatening. So the question is, this is part of my own journey of understanding why do I not feel threatened uh, when I'm watching so many things, you know, I, I wouldn't say deteriorate, God forbid, but I'm saying like change. The things that are challenged in this case, when we talk about the Haggadah, is that period of time which you can call Chazal, right? When people say Chazal. Our, our whole Messorah, our whole tree is based on Chazal's authority. And when you start overanalyzing texts and comparing this Geniza and that manuscript, right, and this uh, Qumran, this and that, you'll you start wondering, like, so wait a minute, how authentic is what's being passed down to us if you undermine the authority that passes it down? And I think that that's the core of the concern when it comes to, to these issues, as opposed to biblical stuff, which is a little bit different. For sure. I, so I'll say that while I explain what I mean, I don't have an answer to all, to the micro, to every last detail. The overall approach is whatever it is. Chazal set up to continue this tradition and has trickled down to today worked in the sense of we have an intact Jewish identity and the concepts that are at play are still meaningful and relevant. And so while certain particulars might be challenged or might be a little bit difficult to understand how they work, right? I'm not too concerned about that because I see that the big picture works. And so these are the ideas that we like talking about, how like you have an existential issue in the Torah that's brought out and Chazal and the Medrash are able to bring that out in a way that we can now relate to today. And the technicalities themselves, okay, so we'll figure it out, you know, as we go. So that's the general approach that I have, even though I don't have answers to everything. When I was doing an MA in Jewish philosophy at uh, Bar-Ilan University, uh, my concentration was on Zohar. And as many, many people know, the Zohar has been polarized in discussions of its authorship and origin. So on the one hand, today you have the party line among religious people is that the Zohar was written by Rabbi Shimon Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yohai, Bar-Yohai, right? Right. which the Zohar by its own account would not corroborate at all because there was somebody else writing it down and there are sections of the Zohar written after its death and all sorts of things. So anybody who reads Zohar seriously will not say that the whole thing was written down by Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yohai. On the academic side, you have people speculating now for uh, you know, over half a century where did the Zohar come from? The fact is we, we have rabbinical criticism of the Zohar even before that, uh, from the Yaivets and from the Baladi community with the, the Yemenites. And so there's a lot of skepticism about the Zohar within our own tradition. But what struck me as I was going through this kind of historicist material about the Zohar was that it all seemed to be missing the point to me. It's like, I don't really care that much about who wrote it or when it was written because whenever it was written down, it clearly has a lot of continuity with the Midrash and with other Mamre Chazal. And so I, there's an oral tradition driving all this. 
And it's fine in my mind if it was written down by people in the 13th century, that doesn't bother me. But what, what's precious to me in the Zohar are the ideas that are expressed. And I want to concentrate on the ideas. And that's where I kind of ran into a brick wall in academia because everything was so concentrated on the historical question. On the technical dry stuff. Yeah, it's like, well, could we talk about this? I'm in a Jewish philosophy program. I want to talk about the philosophical ideas in the Zohar. Right. There are scholars who talk about whether there's continuity or not. That is something. But you're right. It seems that there's way too much concentration on the technical details and less on the ideas. But it could be that's changing. Let's get, though, get into the Haggadah, though. I'd like to yeah. talk about that. And in fact, something which Nachliel said, which actually raises a certain particular issue. And truth matter is, what you said, Mayor Simcha, about the continuity is relevant to it as well. And that is that we're talking about a text which was, in its embryonic form, formulated by rabbis who lived... 2,000 years ago. And a lot of what they're describing in terms of the definition of chirut, trying to have a luxurious freedom-based meal, is based on what a luxurious freedom-based meal would have looked like in the Roman Empire or in Persia close to 2,000 years ago. So why is that not frozen in time? If that is what the Haggadah is, and that's what it's describing, and that's what it's portraying, Nowadays, the only time anyone ever reclines at a meal is not a luxurious meal. It's only at the Seder. So how am I supposed to balance that either as a religious person or even from an historical perspective of this is supposed to teach me about a certain way of thinking, but it's frozen in time, or at least some of it's frozen in time. That's a beautiful point. Yeah, the frozen in time part, I mean, that that is part of the bigger picture of, let's say, Kitneo, right? It's like so many things that we you can say, like, you know what, you're right, but we're technically unable to change that because... You know, and so it, it can run into that as well. And that can be really frustrating for people. In terms of the, the, the Haggadah, there, there is that aspect, which historically can be very interesting to try to analyze, you know, the Greek symposium reclining and having these removable tables. Oh, and that's what the mission means. Like as a person who, does, who teaches in museums, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch people's eyes brighten up like, oh, so that's what it means by reclining. But at the end of the day, so what are we doing leaning on these pillows? Right. <laughs> So I, I definitely want to just sharpen the question. But then when we focus on the ideas of what's going on in the Haggadah, you realize like, okay, some of this stuff is a little bit ancient and funny and there's different customs outside of the, the world we're used to. I mean, you see so many customs in Israel from all over the globe. They're very different. But the core issues that are formulated in the Mishnah, we're talking about like the second century, right? Third century, those issues the conceptual issues are the ones that are important to us and those ones are sometimes missed uh, they're not looked upon because people are focusing on the historic stuff instead of what's the conceptual stuff mm -hmm. and that's what we like to we like to focus more on like the conceptual stuff as okay so the reclining all of that stuff is done to try to set us up for a conceptual experience of what we're doing what is that and are we missing that because we're focusing too much on let's say, on the performance of singing, everyone singing the Manishtana to the point where you can't actually set up a real surprised child to say like, wait, Manishtana, because he has it all rehearsed. Right. We, we have it so figured out that we can't actually do the thing we need to do. So what, what is the Ikar and Tafel here? To this specific point about the reclining and setting up something that looks like a, a Greek symposium, maybe based more on the Roman model of how they would have done it, but uh, this is an example, I think, of how getting into the history can actually very much enrich the experience, because Greek symposium, symposium uh, directly alludes to the Arba Kosot, 
And the reason why is because symposium means getting drunk together. <laughs> soon, like soon together. And then uh, posium, like posis in Greek, drinking. Uh, drinking Interesting. Together. So we're, we're literally talking about drinking together. And this is a setup to drink together. And it's about intimacy. And of course, the archetypical symposium in our minds today is Plato's symposium. Plato's symposium it has the main theme. You know, each Platonic dialogue is asking a what is X question. So the question driving Plato's symposium is what is love? And that's very deeply connected to Pesach. With very interesting. I mean, Shira Shirim yeah. is one of those minagim we have. On Pesach, talking about the love of God to Am Yisrael and taking us out. I mean, so I'm saying focusing on that, I guess the historic there can help us open our eyes to realize, so that's what this is all about. And then we're able to make adjustments, perhaps, because we realize it's not just about the you know, the, the halacha of leaning as you eat the matzah bread, like, what are we actually doing here? I think that could actually help to have some of that historical background. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so let's get into that historical background. Can you give some examples? Give me a good one. Give me an example of something historical in the Haggadah, which has changed over time, or which is a, an important message, which you think is implicit in the historical evolution of the text. Here's a first point. When we think of the Haggadah, we think of a book that we're sitting down with at the Seder. Yeah. And the Haggadah was always published as an addendum in other books for a long time. And it's only in about the 13th century CE that Haggadot start to get published as independent works, right? Many people who learn Rambam will know this from Mishnah Torah. Hey, it's just added in the back there. Exactly. The yes, it's Haggadah right there. And if you actually read his Haggadah, then you might be surprised. I saw that you were doing a series on this with your Rambam, uh, mm-hmm. Rambam theory. So if you actually go through his Haggadah, you'll be surprised by how many familiar things are missing. The Piyutim that we know today, Chad Gadya, um, Dayenu, all that is missing from Rambam. He doesn't do any of that. And that's not a departure. So um, Rav Amram's, uh, Amram Agon's Haggadah concludes after the, the bracha on the fourth uh, cup. And it doesn't include Chasal uh, Sidor Pesach, Sadia Gaon, it doesn't include Chad Gadya or Dayenu. Uh, Rashi includes Dayenu, but he doesn't include Chagadya. He basically approves of Ralph Amram's Haggadah. So you see there's this kind of dialogue going through the medieval authorities. Uh, Sefer Okech, um, 12th century. Yeah, he lived in the 12th century. It's a German authority. So he's the earliest record we have of including Chagadya. Hmm. Um, so those Pew team are something that uh, are added during the medieval period. And I think that gives the, the Seder a lot of the flavor that we think about today. But what I'd really like to focus on is the Mamare Chazal that get us into the early history uh, and the essential structure of the Haggadah. Please, yes, let's hear about that. So we, we have these basic mitzvot in the Torah that are going to uh, that set up the, the mitzvah of Zecher Leitziat Mitzrayim. Pesach Matzalmo. Pesach, well, yeah, but actually, hold on, let me get there. Okay. Because I, I think you're taking something for granted. We have this basic chiyuk in the Torah, and then we have this process of formalizing how to do the mitzvah that begins or, st- or begins getting written down at least uh, during bayit shaining. Um, and while the temple is still standing, that process has already begun. So Rabban Gamliel has the ma'amar that we say in the Haggadah itself, right? That you haven't fulfilled your obligation unless you say say. Pesach Matzo Moror. Yeah. So like every year I'm sitting at this area, it's like, okay, we said it. So do we feel, fulfill our obligation? Like, what does it mean to, to say those things? So I think that this Ma'amar is really easy to take for granted. And I'm totally guilty of that myself because it seems so obvious. 
but also like Newton's laws feel obvious in retrospect. Uh, and I think that that's the level that we're talking about when we're talking about what Robin Gamaliel actually says here. So like if we place this mamar in history into the life and the development of our people, um, I think we can really start to appreciate it. So what he's doing is he's defining the basic terms in which the story needs to be told and they're all food terms, which hmm. is an astounding thing. Like it didn't have to be that way. Like, so wait, so let me understand what you're saying. You're saying yeah. that when he says anyone who has not mentioned, and obviously the commentators say that that means to explain, but the simple words are, did not say this, Pesach, Matzah, and Maror, if someone did not say that at the Seder, he has not fulfilled his obligation. You mean that is providing a framework based on food in which the story is supposed to be told. Is that what, you're, is that what you mean? That's essentially where I'm going, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Okay, so what do you mean? How does that work in practice? He's connecting the idea of Amira, of articulation, of speaking at the Seder directly to these foods. Hmm. It would have been possible to tell the whole story of the Exodus without talking about the foods. You could concentrate completely on the ideas of slavery and on getting out and never say a single thing about a Korban Pesach, about unleavened bread, about... Moror, like who's going to say Moror? Like this is an amazing integration of food into story. We don't do this for any other hug. Of course, we we you know we think a great yeah, deal. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Like the famous joke, but it's not really right. But yeah, that it's it's not, a joke. not innate in the food. The way that we give over our story isn't integrated with food in any. Way I guess the closest way. thing I can think of offhand is probably Purim, where getting drunk, so to speak, and having a person is obligated to get spiced up on Purim, to take it literally, is predicated on what happened in the Megillah itself, which is permeated with wine. But obviously there are connections between Purim and Pesach as well. That's not That's surprising. Okay. They work together. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the difference is in, in Purim, it's just you need to get drunk. Here it's like you need to you need to fulfill the mitzvah through eating and drinking. The mitzvah, you know, so a, the mitzvah of speaking about it, is directly connected to the food. Right? And then we talk about the drinking and Pesach. I mean, here's where a little bit of historical context is wine, considering that wine was something which belonged to the upper class. Drinking wine was something that you do in a luxurious fashion. Wine in context is also important. So to try to drink wine to express your freedom. Is something that people would relate to a lot more then. But it's like the drinking itself mm. makes you feel like, oh, I'm a freed person. It's like that scene in Shawshank Redemption. They're sitting on the rooftop, tarring the roofs, and they're all drinking those cold beers, and like we feel like free men again, right? It's like they're that expression of the I'm free. Right, you know, as long as we're talking about it, I'm going to throw out a theory to you, which I've had for a while about this. And I'll say that this particular theory about Rabban Gamliel, it certainly is not the uh, approach taken by all the Rishonim. There's certainly some who disagree with that. So I'll say that out loud. But okay. I was always mystified by the fact that it says Rabban Gamliel Omer, kol shalo amar shloshad devarim elu bapesach. That word is superfluous. This is in the 10th parak of Pesachim. It's in the section about Pesach. What else are we talking about? It's in the middle of this parak about the Seder. So I always wondered if actually Rabbi Gamliel might be saying something else. He's saying anyone who does not say these three things while eating the Korban Pesach, meaning eating the Korban Pesach without talking, apart from the special law of Haggadah and Pesach, has not fulfilled the obligation of Korban Pesach. In other words, it says has not fulfilled its obligation. But what obligation? There are multiple obligations. It could be 
I'm just suggesting this, that the obligation of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is not what we're talking about here. Perhaps, he means, he has not fulfilled the obligation of Korban Pesach. You can't eat the Korban Pesach without talking about what it means. That's another possibility, oh, I think. Beautiful. That's beautiful. That's a whole other level of integrating together the story with the eating. What I want to suggest is that this mamar of Rabban Gamliel is really an inflection point in our understanding of the mitzvah of Zecher Yitzhak Mitzrayim and, uh, and of Pesach even more uh, generally. I can't quite say this because we don't know what traditions he was working with, but either this is an inflection point because he's articulating it this way, or it's his tremendous chiddush and parshat bo to, to see this relationship between the foods and the, the storytelling. So I just want to bring that out because that, that's something that we can't take for granted and if we lose our consciousness of how things develop over time, I think it's very, very easy to take that for granted. Imagine living before Rabban Gamliel said that. Like, would you have known that? Right. It's a, it's a very important point. And I think the Pesach itself, along the lines of what you're saying, involves pointing at something and saying, I'm not just telling you a story. I'm showing you something which can help you understand that story. That's what you're saying right now. In fact, when we say Ba'avor Zeh, Asa Hashem li on account of this. And often the word this, zeh, Chazal understand it as something you can point to. So yeah. it might be the same idea as well. Yeah. Right, So exactly. let me give you another example now. Please, yes. Rabban Gamliel is living when, uh, when Bait Shani is still standing. No, yeah, but I'm saying like the, tra- the transition is Yavne. Yes, he's so. the transition point. And we have a, a whole generation of our rabbis who are in the Haggadah who are that transitional gener- generation, which yes. is fascinating that the moment that we're freezing in time is that generation who's making that transition mm-hmm. from we have Bayacheni to we don't anymore. And just to, just to parenthetically to mention that we're talking about the period between Hurban Bayacheni to the Bar Kokhva revolt. In other words, Rabbi Akiva is, apparently saw both destructions, right? He, was, he lived to a very old age. We say Zecher Lemikdash Kehillel, but now we don't have one. And so Rabbi Gamliel's Takanos, his institutions, were, were there to give us a way to continue something, which is important to develop without a base of Mikdash, without a temple. So a lot of what's happening in that period of time is, is understood better in that context of what they're doing. If we can go now to after that period, so we can go to Rav and Shmuel. So Rav and Shmuel are both born and raised in, in Babel. Uh, Shmuel, of course, studies uh, for some time in Eretz Israel, but um, the, the famous Mamar on uh, in Masechet Pesachim, Machil Beganut and Masayim Beshevach, Mai Ganut, Rav Amar Mitchila Ovdei Avodah Zarah Hayu Avotenu, Shmuel Amar Avadim Hayinu. The idea is that our giving over the story has to have a trajectory from being low and degraded to Shevach, to to something praiseworthy, and Rav and Shmuel each define what that trajectory is differently. They both agree, yeah, okay, we need that upward trajectory, but what are we talking about? And the way Rav sees it, he says, originally we were uh, idol worshippers. We were idol worshippers. And then HaKadosh Baruch Hu took us out and he gave us Torah and he, he pulled us out of, uh, out of idolatry. So that's the freedom that we're talking about, freedom from idolatry. Where Shmuel has a different perspective. And he says, no, 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 no. The ganut, the degradation, is that we were slaves to Pharaoh, and the shevach, the high state, is that we became free people, physically free. So he's talking about physical liberation. So these are two very different ways of looking at what that trajectory is. The question is, 
before this machloka, how on earth did people tell the story? So you can imagine you'd go to one Seder and somebody would tell the story like Rav said to tell the story. You know, you you go to the uh, whatever Mea Sharim would have been back then, and that's how they would tell the story. And then you'd go to whatever equivalent of the secular liberal American home is, and they would be focusing on physical bondage and uh, rights and human dignity and things like that. And then maybe you'd go to another home and you'd get a Zionist story. What's Ganut? What's the degradation is that we were living outside of our homeland? And what's the Shebach that we returned to our homeland? Right? We can, we can imagine other dimensions in which we could uh, see that degradation and that lifting up. And some of them aren't even focused on Egypt, which is the point. Right. Yeah, they don't have to be focused on well, Egypt. Well, why would that be the case? Why, according to the Rav way of looking at it, I know this is a well-known question, but why, according to the way Rav looks at it, would anyone assume anything other than this is starts off with, you know, you were enslaved and then we became free? There are all sorts of theological messages which could come alongside of that. But would anyone really think that Shmuel's would not need to be said at the Seder, that I'm going to go to a Seder, and I'm not going to talk about the slavery at all, I'm just going to talk about how Avraham's parents were over the Avodah Zarah? Like, is that something which we can realistically assume about that time? I think so. I think we could see it because of Brit Ben Batarim. So Avraham is given a promise that uh, in order to uh, merit to inherit the land and not just get it as a, a nice gift, uh, your children are going to have to essentially go through what you went through. So you came out of a place of Abu Dazara. You had to have your own Yitziat Mitzrayim, you know, from Orkastim on his level. And we have Abraham meeting Matzot. And there's a whole tradition about Abraham's freedom and his struggle for freedom. By the same token, you could see, so all of Mitzrayim, all of our struggle in Egypt is wrapped into that because he's promised that we have to go and be slaves for 400 years. So why were we in Mitzrayim at all? Who cares about the slavery? Slavery is an incidental issue. The main thing is that struggle for spiritual freedom and reenacting that on the level of a people, just like he had on the level of an individual. In a sense, if you had to narrow down what was Pesach about in one idea, you can't talk about it without saying this is connected to Avraham and to his search for freedom. Otherwise, it has no context. It's like, I mean, it's like any historical question. You can't talk about World War II without talking about World War I. Right? Hmm. You need to understand the Treaty of Versailles. You need to understand, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Like, so you need to go back to Avraham. And so he's saying that's the route because the whole point of going down to Egypt, that doesn't make sense without the bris with Avraham. Right. Now, I am not saying that anybody should just stick with Rav and ignore Shmuel because I think that what we get coming out of this Mahlokat is a tremendous, tremendous Kiddush that what they do in that machloket is that they articulate that there are multiple possibilities. There are multiple dimensions in which we have that trajectory from Ganut to Shebach. And our Seder, our Haggadah, integrates each of their Haggadah. They become interwoven. So the one of the crazy things about the Seder is that it seems to have no Seder at all. But it seems to, our Seder seems so mixed up because it's compressed down into uh, one time dimension. But if you see that there are actually two dimensions that are being compressed into one, then it starts to make more sense. So you have to see that there's a line of thinking that follows Rav through the Seder. And there's another line of thinking that follows Shmuel through the Seder, and that those are interwoven in complex and beautiful ways. And then the, the structure of the Seder starts to become much more transparent. But what this means, what this means is that our Haggadah, the way that it developed, 
and this is development, this only occurred in time, we have to see our story in a multi-dimensional way. It's not enough to see it in a unidimensional way. We can't just have one or the other. What it means to become free through our Haggadah is to see things in the fullness of the possible dimensions. That's very interesting. So what you're saying is that it's not merely that we're compromising or trying to incorporate both stories in order to make everybody happy. Of course, that's going on, but something much more complex and perhaps deeper is going on, which is that any story that's told properly has multiple dimensions to the story. And by integrating both Rav and Shmuel, what we're doing is making the story three-dimensional. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly my idea. And there's, there's another, another thing, speaking about the Seder, is this is where you, when you look at the Rambam in the more condensed form of the Haggadah and you put that alongside the Mishnah, it makes so much sense because the Mishnah is very straightforward about what the Seder needs to consist of. There's these several elements, putting aside at what point you drink, etc., and uncover and cover the matzah. And all, basically says you need... There are these, the Kana Ben Shoel there's questions that need to be asked. And then for whatever reason, the Mishnah insists that you need to be Dorish, to be Dorish the, uh, the Haggadah, the proclamation that you make in Bikurim, Arami Oved Avi. And that's right. pretty much what the Haggadah does. It's Matchil Begut Mesembeshevach, according to Rav. Then there's four questions. Either it's the, the Manishtana or it's the next one, which is the Arbabanim, but it's the same structure. It just starts all over again. And then when you've done both Rav and Shmuel, Matchil Begut and the child asking questions, then you bring it together with this drush of Arami Oved Avi. And then you have all these other stories that give you the background of the rabbis who are talking about how important it is to talk about the story, even though we never get to do that, right? We just talk about how they talked about it. And then you condense it down to Datsach Adash Bechav. Oh, we're good. You know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of funny. The Rambam says something very curious. He says, You need to, to, to teach this message to the child based on the child's capacity to understand, which you think would mean if the child is younger and can't understand so much, so you give him the funny stories, the fun story. You tell him Prince of Egypt, you know, you give him Ceci B. DeMille or whatever. That's probably not kosher today, right? You, you, tell, you tell him all the fun stories, but if they grow up, you can talk about the philosophical stuff. But the Rambam does the opposite. The Rambam says, if the child is so simple that they won't really understand, you point to the servant in the house and you say, you see, you see the servant over here? We used to be like that. And tonight, on this night, God was poed to us, he redeemed us, and we're free. If the child is much more sophisticated, you can tell him the story of the Makos and the Nisim and all that stuff. Right? That, that really switches around how we think about it, because we today do the opposite. If you have to take it down to the bare bones, the idea is to recognize what it means to be free. And he's assuming that every child in his most basic understanding is able to understand, I don't want to be that. I know that that's not what I want to be, because they don't have their own life. You know, if I can suggest something, Nachliel, I think once again we have what Mayor Simcha had alluded to earlier in describing Pesach Matan Maror as something which we look at. It's the same sort of thing, which is that a story that's abstract, even if it's about miracles and all sorts of frogs and blood and whatever, remains abstract. There's nothing that can be as good a teaching tool for the simple as being able to point to something and saying that. That's what I'm talking about. That's that ultimately more. does more than any sort of verbal discussion, even if it's on a simple level. And we definitely do a lot of that on Pesach. It's all about trying to recreate through an experience. Oh, this is such bitter herbs. Why are we eating this maror? You know, like we know that the maror that they ate is actually the, the smaller leaves. They get sweet when they get as large as we eat them. But the same 
lettuce, it's much more bitter when it's smaller. It's like you eat it, it's like, this is so bitter. Like, yeah, because our life was bitter, right? It's so many of these things, it's mm-hmm. like through our sensual, you see, you point, you eat, that you're able to experience. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a philosophical conversation. You need to somehow experience it. I want to go back to the point that Nachleel was saying before about the essential Haggadah and then these other things that, that come in afterwards. So we have all these PU team that come in and they're very beautiful and we enjoy them a great deal, but we have a problem with them, which is that they obscure the essential structure of the, the Haggadah. And so again, I think that seeing how the Haggadah developed over time and how these were integrated later helps us relate to them in a better way. So first, the, the first move to make is to imagine the Haggadah without them or to just go to Mishnah Torah and read Rambam's Haggadah. And then you can see, okay, here's the essential structure. And now that I can see that there are these few teams that are coming to accompany that essential structure, now let me wonder like, okay, what are these doing here? Like, how are these here to assist me in getting into that structure and in relating to that structure, what are they doing for me here? So I had two ideas that I wanted to throw out. I think about Dayenu. Dayenu is essentially a song about our relationship to the story because we go through each stage of our story and we say Dayenu, it would have been enough for us. And there's an obvious sense in which it wouldn't have been enough for us. Like, okay, we went out of Mitzrayim, but we didn't receive the Torah. Like, I mean, so what are we what are we doing here? Right. Why why did we go to Har Sinai if we didn't get the Torah? Right. The whole point of taking us out, as Hakadosh Baruch Hu says at the beginning of uh, Parshat Vayera, is to bring us into the land in order to fulfill the breed. And if he doesn't fulfill the breed, like how on earth could that be Dayenu? Right. So the the sense of Dayenu can only concern our relationship to the story. And as, what do you mean? As opposed to the historic outcome. Right. It's oh, you know, you're that, talking about my emotional relationship with what's been happening so far. I, I don't think it's merely emotions, but yeah, definitely emotions are involved in it, right? So it, it's the awareness of the story, the awareness of what each stage of this means. And the Pesach Seder, the whole thing is essentially about awareness, which is why all the dinim of Kiddush are in Meseke Pesachim. And why on earth would you do that? Ah, well, because you need to see Havdalah. You need to be able to make distinctions and do this. And why would all that be in Pesach? Pesach is all about that awareness and the cultivation of that consciousness I mean, of where you are, what time are you in, what, I mean, uh, what makes a difference? Manishtana. A good wordplay for, for appreciating Dayenu is saying, I can die now. When a person says, I can die now, now that I've seen it, that doesn't mean I want to die now, but I've seen enough of the process working itself out that I can appreciate what's been put in and invested. Now I see it. I can die. Like, I know it's going to carry on from here. We're in good hands because I've lived to see this much. That's that appreciation of every point, even though there obviously is a bigger picture. I see where this is going. I'm at peace with it. Maybe maybe this is a little personal, but I always think about that when I hear people saying like, Mashiach now. It's like, I mean, yeah, of course I, I want Mashiach to come. But with everything that we've seen in our lives, it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I could die now. Like, I don't, I don't need to physically be there. Like I, well, Chazal would actually say, I wish many times Chazal would say, I would like not to be there. <laughs> That's also true. Also true. Yeah, Let's go on to the next example. We don't have that much time left. I want to hear your second example, Mayor Simcha, you were about to suggest about Putim and the Haggadah. Okay, so just to, to finish up on the, the Dayenu piece, the point is that we have this later edition, but before Dayenu, 
Dayenu highlights the fact that we have a relationship to this story. It's not just that there's a story. There's also, you have to relate to this story. So there's aware, an awareness of how we tell the story, our experience of the story itself, how we re-experience it over the generations. And that's not something that the Torah can be koveya. That can only come from the bottom up in the same way that Hanukkah and Purim would be nonsensical if the Torah defined them. Those, are, those moedim have to be defined by humans because it's how we achieve ourselves. Okay, so here's the other example. And, and the example is Chad Gadya. So Chad Gadya is ostensibly just a really silly song. And I wanna suggest that there are two ways to relate to it in the Seder. And again, all this relies on seeing it as a later edition and not as an essential part of the structure. All right. So the first thing is it's a silly song and silliness is really important in the Seder because you have to keep the kids engaged. And, and so it's an, a, a very important, useful piece of accompaniment. And if they make it that, that far. If they make it that far. If but they make it that far, right. If they make it that far, but kids anticipate things. Kids will stay up. I want to stay up for that. Right? Today it's more difficult because they're so mushka uh, in all the media that they have. But once upon a time, you can imagine that, um, that Chad Gadya would have made a big difference. That it was like watching a cartoon. Yeah, nothing like watching it. Yes, Chad Gadya would make a great cartoon. And then the, the other level on which I, I've been thinking about it is uh, the Chida points out that the Gra wrote 10 different uh, perushim of Chad Gadya. And that's kind of a shocking thing. Uh, the Gra is writing, why would you invest time in that? I think that the point has to be that even in these incidental things, the most fundamental ideas, the most fundamental structures of reality become manifest. And so the, the shtuyot of our lives can be revealed as containing the deepest, deepest things. And, and when we do that, we can start to see how the very idea of story, the very idea of sipur, starting with sipur yitziat mitzrayim, can run through our whole lives. And so the capacity to be dorish winds up becoming manifest in something even as silly as Chad Gadya. Mm. And that it goes to what you were saying before about how the whole Seder centers not on reading the book of Exodus. It winds up being about the Drisha, winds up being about storytelling itself. Yes, yeah. storytelling exactly. itself. Exactly. Achieving the perspective on the story. What is our story? And a Drisha very often, I mean, that's, I guess that fits into how we started with the concept of historicity and then anachronism and all these things. The challenges would come from people saying, but wait a minute, that's Chazal's interpretation of a biblical text based on a Greco-Roman word. You can't reinsert that into the past, you know? But like, I, I think Chazal were quite aware of what they were doing. They're not projecting necessarily into the past saying, this is how it historically was. They're basically saying, this is how we understand it as we relate to things today. As I, I mean, there's a whole field of study of comparing uh, Chazal's drushos to uh, like Rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Elman talks about in the Gemara, we have Talmudic law and then we, we have uh, Sasanian Persian law, right? He actually started that field of study. So when we, we, we over-contextualize Chazal, it seems to threaten Chazal's authority because you're saying like, oh, they're just doing something contemporary and they're projecting it into the past as if things were actually like that. And then you can go and historically prove that they weren't like that. And now that threatens the way I look at Chazal. Like, I think Chazal knew very well what they were doing. I mean, they, they, from their point of view, this wasn't an issue. Like many of the stories, the Midrashim, you know, they don't necessarily have to be exactly like, like my little Midrash says. 
But the point is that we're trying to, to bring it to life, telling a story to get to the ichor of the story by bringing it out and, and adding and garnishing it, even though it didn't need to happen exactly like that. But the point is that the, the activity of trying to garnish it is part of being part of the story. Seeing yourself in that story, I hear that. We're almost out of time. This has been fascinating. I know, Nachliel, you have some very specific thoughts about art and the Haggadah. Could you just in briefly, in one minute, tell us about that? So in the Renaissance period, which is a very, a very good period for the Jews of Northern Italy, they had like the, they had artisans working with them. You know, you think about Leonardo da Vinci's period, right? So in this period, Jews produced very lavishly illuminated manuscripts with gold and colorful paint, illustrating their Haggadahs. And what's very striking about these Haggadahs is that they have pictures and imagery, sometimes which we would think of as inappropriate. So for example, right? we say, all of that stuff, they actually make pictures of nudes. Like, what is this doing in a Haggadah? And it's not in one and it's not in two. This is found even in printed Haggadahs in the 18th century later. Like there are certain hmm. norms that we've forgotten or lost touch with or sensitivities that have changed, but we know that that was considered quite normative. And what I wanted to just point out is that we're speaking about the visualizing and the pointing to point to a story shamelessly and say like, that we're talking about this sort of relationship where God treats us like we were a girl who was found and gathered in and, she t- and he took care of us and raised us and then married us, right? That was something that they shamefully spoke about, even illustrated, because you need to be able to point and say, this is what we're talking about. Hmm. So that doesn't really sit with our modern sentiments and sensitivities, but that was part of the Seder. It's making pictures so they can really bring it out and experience the Haggadah. Very interesting. We're really almost out of time, so I just want to ask you both what each of you would recommend that families do at their Seder, which they might not be used to doing. Can each of you give an example of something which you think would really positively affect a family's relationship with the Haggadah and the Seder so that it will come alive? Uh, I would try to, first of all, genuinely surprise the kids and really get them to go like, what is going on? I don't know how much of the school tuition they can take away to make sure that the kids aren't surprised anymore, right? Because we invest so much in that. But if there's a way to really get the kids to wonder what is going on, like that would be really, really great. Because then you can jump in there and say, well, tonight is very strange, isn't it? Because I was going to say the same exact thing, but I would just add to it that I think the way to surprise your kids is very much to be surprised yourself, to start with that. And what would that mean? It's going to depend on the person, but uh, dig in and uh, discover something that surprises you. There's no shortage of questions to ask. I mean, that's, that's the whole show, Elis Atzma, right? You ask yourself. But to try to really ask yourself, what is going on? What am I doing here? And why does this make a difference? Even if it's facing those questions and doubts, I mean, that's a great way to get into it. And to know that it makes a difference. That sounds great. Just with one minute left, tell me about your podcast, The Artifact Podcast. We like talking about artifacts and how they branch out to talking about different things. So we'll look, for example, at a cork with a picture of the Miraglim holding a vine, and it says uh, Carmel Winery, founded 1882. We can talk about the first Aliyah, 1882, Rothschild helping build these wineries, and then we can talk about the Miraglim. Then we talk about wine itself and the history of wine, and we can talk about the Seder, we can talk about the symposium. We can talk about them, all these different things, and modern Zionism and propaganda, like what about the earlier Aliyot of the Gra and the Ramban, right? So we branch out from one artifact to encompass areas of history, philosophy, etymology, etymology, 
and things like that. So we just branch all over the place through one artifact as a portal to many different subjects. Sounds like fun. That sounds terrific. Everyone should check out the Artifact podcast. And Mayor Simcha, you also have a podcast called Two Christians and a Jew, right? That's right. Yeah, I talk with, uh, I discovered that there are many uh, Christians in America who are interested in finding out how we read the Torah because they read things and they don't understand what they mean and they'd like to find out. And uh, so just share with them. And I have okay. a, a video series called Sefer Study Archaeology Snapshot. This was TanakhStudy.com. Did a podcast last year called Archaeology and the Parasha. It's, it's available. And this year we're doing a video series, basically a, an archaeological historical perspective on each one of the sperm of Tanakh. We're, we're in the middle of Tresar now. It's been quite a journey. Okay, sounds like a lot of fun. Well, I appreciate you providing insights to everyone listening. This is really interesting. Hopefully everyone will have a more engaged and more emotionally powerful Pesach based on everything you told us. So Mayor Simcha Panzer, Nachliel Salavan, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Rav Scott. Thank you so much. Hag Sameach. Please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast, share and tell your friends about it, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word out. Join the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook and like and follow the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook. Visit jewishcoffeehouse.com to find some of the best podcasts in the Jewish world, including Chochmat Ashim, Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. Please also join the Jewish Coffee House team as a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get great bonus podcasts, excellent merch, and more while helping Jewish Coffee House to reach our growing audience. You can find a link to Patreon in the description of the podcast. Finally, if you are interested in having your own podcast, Jewish Coffee House can help make it happen. We will assist you with anything you need. We can teach you the skills to make a podcast that sounds as good as an FM radio show. We can help you with recording, editing, music, graphic art, promotion, and more. We can give you tips on podcast styles, interviewing hosts, guests, and everything else you need to make your podcast the best it can be. Whatever you need, Jewish Coffee House will work with you to make it happen and make it better than you imagined. Write to me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com and let me help you get started reaching hundreds or even thousands of people with a high-quality podcast. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.